Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today we're here with Roger Murrah. Nashville Songwriter Hall of Famer Roger Murrah was born in Athens, Georgia. When he was a child, his father traded a used pickup truck for a piano. Roger taught himself how to play it, and as he once said, since I'd learned by ear, I always kept it simple. Didn't ever really want it to get too complicated. After leaving the Army in 1968, he signed as a staff songwriter at the legendary Muscle Shoals Recording Studio and went on to open his own Huntsville, Alabama recording studio. A true independent, he published and mentored many up-and-coming songwriters and is credited with founding the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. His songwriting and mentorship style emphasized less is more. Clearly, this style worked as he wrote 10 number one songs and 44 top 40 songs. His songs have been recorded by country music royalty. So we're here with Roger Murrah, and you're part of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and we're honored to have you here. We're here to talk about some of your songs. Thank you, Doug. You grew up in Alabama, Mm -hmm. and your first recorded song that I have is It's Raining in Seattle by Wynn Stewart. Yeah, it was the first charted song. Charted song. I wrote some others, but... And it's the most redundant title I've interviewed someone on. I know. It's always raining in Seattle. You know, <laughs> like if you say in Seattle, you know it's raining. <laughs> and you know what? I wasn't that well traveled, and I didn't even know that. I didn't even know it rained in Seattle all the time. And it's also has a large uh, number of suicides in that area as well. You know, but it, that was very interesting to find out later. But uh, yeah, that was my first title that charted. When Stewart was a Fantastic country singer. He kind of came through the Bakersfield group of people. So tell me about the story behind that song. You weren't from Seattle. No, I wasn't. And uh, I don't know. It it came from kind of a a sad emotion I was going through. And uh, that's just the way I expressed it. Interesting thing about that record Wynn Stewart was not the most dependable guy in the world and had drinking problems, unfortunately. The head of the label that he was on at the time, which was RCA, Jerry Bradley, tried to get in touch with him, and he never did even check in. And he was charting, and they wanted to run it on up the charts, but they couldn't get Wynn to uh, participate. (laughs) So they basically just dropped the record. So that was unfortunate for all of us, especially me, because it was my first shot at that. So just one of the many, many things that happened along the way. But this song wasn't about your personal situation? Not really. Like a lot of artists. No, it it began with chords, me playing on the piano, which I learned to kind of play. I never did really learn how to play well. But I learned uh, a few chords, and every time I'd learn a new chord, it would inspire me to write two or three songs because I could mix that new chord up with three or four chords I already knew and just turn it around every which way. So I have a real country story about being a piano player. My daddy traded a pickup truck for an old acoustic piano years ago, and I learned to play by ear and a couple of other siblings as well. That's how it all started, really. Your first charting song was My Silver Lining. Well, Seattle was the first. I'm, I'm, it's raining oh, in Seattle that? was the first the, sorry, charting. Sir, first top 10 song. Exactly. First top 10 song exactly. was My Silver Lining by Mickey Gilley. Yes, and uh, my sister and I wrote that, Tina. And uh, Tina actually got to sing harmony with Mickey on that record, so she was all excited about that. But yeah, I believe we went top five with that. And so what's the story behind My Silver Lining? You know, my my songs originated in very, uh, I don't know what you would call it, songwriter fashion. I, I don't always live the stories, 
but I've lived the emotion somewhere. The idea of the song was, you must be my silver lining, you know. It's like the girl was the one who made everything work out well, you know. I wish I had a better story for you, but I, I just, I was set down at the piano and and that kind of came out. So in 1981, you had a very successful year. You had A Bridge That Just Won't Burn by Conway Twitty. Mm-hmm. Well, Southern Rains, of course, was my first number one record. When I sat down to write that song, I really was just expressing my love for the South. And I didn't even think about it being a commercial song. If someone had asked me at the time, I'd just tell them I was writing about the South. I love the South. It was no bigger surprise to anyone than it was to me that it it did so well in the charts. And Jimmy Bowen, who produced Mel at the time, for some reason he had gotten a hold of some of my songs and uh, he, he started really being a flag waver for me. And Jimmy was a, he was a renowned executive in town, headed a lot of labels and Fired a lot of people. <laughs> and he also uh, brought digital to Nashville. But anyhow, he was he was into my writing and uh, was very good to me as a producer on, on that label. I believe it was MCA. I was thrilled to get that recording. I, I'll have to confess something, though. With all due respect to everybody, especially Mel, the record sounded a little stiff to me, you know, <laughs> because the rhythm of it was just not what we demoed and or what I heard in the song. And so it was a real mixture of emotions when it was number one. I was also a little embarrassed by it because I knew it could sound so much better. It's kind of weird. It's a weird thing. But I was very grateful and always have been and still am grateful to everybody that helped us have that. But it was it was about my my life, really. In Alabama. Mm-hmm. The things I spoke of, I mean. That old train, the hummingbird. Yeah, the hummingbird. I used to hear my mother talk about it, you know. I think it ran from New Orleans to uh, up further north, maybe Chicago. I'm not sure. But I just love the sound of that, and uh, that's why I put it in the song. Homesick is a feeling that a body can't get over. So that, that was just speaking to the fact that I missed where I grew up. I missed home. I missed family. I came to Nashville in 1972, and I must say I am a proud Tennessean now. I love Middle Tennessee, and I love Nashville. Nashville's been good to me. It really has. Why is that? Well, because I was I was just accepted by so many people that— they didn't have any real reason to give me the time of day, really. Bobby Bear, who actually kind of discovered me, gave me my first deal. Bobby was a great country singer and interpreter of songs, and he was also two of the best ears for songs Nashville has ever heard. He he was one of the first to record people like Christopherson, Tom T. Hall, Billy Joe Schaefer. Oh, man, it just goes on and on. He his ear for music was just amazing, and Bobby's still living and uh, not in the best of health, but he's a wonderful man. So you were part of his writing core. Yes. And uh, you co-wrote a lot of songs. Your sister, Tina, Scott Anders, mm-hmm. Keith Stegall, mm-hmm. Jim McBride. Yeah. I mostly co-wrote, really. Southern Rains I wrote by myself. I've written other songs by myself, but at a time when I was with Tom Collins Music, I'm skipping around here, but I used to tell people every day I was either starting or finishing a song with a different person. Marcus Hummond's first number one record was Only Love by Winona. Marcus and I wrote that song. I wrote the first number one, I believe, that James Dean Hicks ever had was Goodbye Time, which uh, he and I wrote together. That was his first. And uh, so it, was, it wasn't unusual for me to get with people. Well, like when I got with Alan Jackson, I mean, he hadn't had any activity either. He was singing demos. Keith Stegall, who was, ended up producing everything on 
Alan, he saw what the potential was in Alan. And honestly, I must say, I didn't really see that myself. But he, he made his point. And when Alan himself wrote, uh, Where Were You When the World Stood Still, I believe, he really won me over as a songwriter. He, that, that was a masterpiece. Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, I believe was the title, singing about when the, uh, the uh, bombing happened in New York, you know. You had a lot of success writing for the Oak Ridge Boys, mm-hmm. or they picked up your songs, yeah. um, often with, co-written with James Dean Hicks. Yeah. Uh, the first one to go to number one was It Takes a Little Rain to Make Love Grow. Yeah, yeah. Seems like we may have written the chorus first on that song, and I just loved the how the title fit the melodic structure of that. They've always been big uh, fans of my work and wouldn't wasn't unusual at all for them to call me when they were getting ready to record and see if I had anything that they haven't heard or if it, anything that uh, I wanted to remind them of <laughs> that I may have pitched them already. They've been really good to me. And so when you're collaborating with your co-writers on something like that, what part of the song do you try to contribute or do you well, try to contribute everywhere you can? Well, I'm, I'm really all over the place. Um, I, I'm usually kind of the referee of the session. I kind of lead. I would benefit as an older writer from the new ideas and fresh ideas from the younger writers. Then I would have the experience to uh, try to put ideas that they had into a more melodic lyric or something. So I contributed in in all kinds of ways, no particular way, but I've always written melody and lyric. I'm kind of known in some circles as as a song doctor. I'm a real good editor. And without meaning to sound boastful, I may be one of the best song editors in town, really. And, of course, that's a dying breed of people, too. So, uh, What do you think about when you're editing songs? Well... Less is more is kind of a very common thing. Less lyric, more powerful lyric. I've never been real wordy with lyrics. I try to say the most I can with the least amount of lyric. And sometimes a lyric can be shaped and made better by a word being singular or plural. It just matters how it sings. Like a singular song will, I mean, I'm sorry, a singular lyric will usually sing better than a plural lyric. And so sometimes it's a matter of taking out an apostrophe and things like that. I mean, it's very, very detail-oriented to do it well. I think with all due respect to our young writers these days, they settle a little quickly, a little quicker than they should. The rhyming is not as good as it once was. They will use bad rhymes just to kind of get through the line when they needed to be spending more time on the real rhyme, you know? And so that's kind of disappointing, but, uh, hey, they're getting away with it, and some of them are becoming hits, so it's hard to argue with them, you know? But as a lyricist, I I do argue with them. I think they... uh, They need to be paying more attention to keep the craft alive, you know? In 1989, Alabama discovered you. Yeah. And you had two number ones, their record, Southern Star, Mm -hmm. High Cotton and Southern Star. Yeah. Talk about the making of High Cotton, because this is a controversial subject, but in some respects, you know, the Dixie, you know, today, the whole way down in Dixie thing oh. is oh might not be as politically correct as it was. Mm, in interesting that you bring that up. I, I've never heard that before, but maybe I'm off the mark. It, well, and I probably well, am. <laughs> are you thinking? Are you thinking that it that it came from an old uh, African American spiritual? Are you talking? Well, about does that? it come from that? I've, it may. It may very well. But anyhow, the song is is really about my life. I mean, uh-huh. it's a place. Yeah, yeah. We were walking in high cotton. 
In other words, we were poor people, but we didn't feel like poor people. We felt like we were rich because of the love in the family. We did kind of borrow the melody, and we were walking in high cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. That's from an old hymn, and it could very well be an old a Negro spiritual, really. I'm, I'm just not sure about that. I need to look into that. Well, isn't that a line in, in the song Dixie, I Wish I Wasn't Dixie? Good times there are not forgotten. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's that came from somewhere else. That came from somewhere else. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mickey Newberry, one of my favorite writers in the world, he, he wrote that. And, uh, well, actually did kind of assemble the trilogy. That's what he did, actually. Those were three different songs that he put together. In what? Uh, in High Cotton? No, 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 no. In, in his song... Oh. Uh, oh, I wish I was in the land of God. Da, 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 da. Well, that's just one song. There's three songs in that song. Oh, really? The one that Elvis ended up recording and, and everybody else. I mean, a lot of people recorded it. But it was a trilogy that Mickey Newberry arranged from three old songs. So, but anyhow, High Cotton, we borrowed from that, some of that lyric kind of thing. yes. We did it for the effect it would have on our song. In other words, it would let people reminisce, and it also let them feel the feeling of the spiritual aspect of it. To borrow that was part of the uh, inspiration in the song, really. So you've written the song about your home state, mm-hmm. Alabama. Mm-hmm. How does it get to Alabama? How does it get to... I don't remember how that one got to them. I think my publisher probably pitched it. I've got a better story about another song they recorded. Sure. Go into that. Tell me. <laughs> uh, the song, I'm in a Hurry and Don't Know Why. Okay. That Randy Van Warmer and I wrote in Alabama, recorded, and had a monstrous hit on that. And it was at a time when their their career was uh, kind of in a lull. So they really needed a hit song. I was walking out the door of our office because Alabama had called for me to bring them songs. So as I was walking out, my uh, former wife, she called me about that time, and she asked me if I was taking I'm in a hurry. I said, no. And she said, you ought to take it. And uh, so that was one of those times where I didn't think myself out of it. I just picked up a copy of it and took it with me, and they just loved it. They just loved it. They wanted to copy the bass line in it. They loved everything about it. So kind of long story short, they had a monstrous hit on that song. And it was because my wife just accidentally mentioned it, and I accidentally took it and didn't think enough about it to whether I may have changed my mind. I don't know, but I didn't. I just took it. <laughs> so, And they ended up sending her a dozen yellow roses, so she loved that. It has kind of a acapella Mm-hmm. feel to yeah. it. Uh, Randy Van Warmer is a, he's deceased now, unfortunately. But he had that huge pop song, uh, You Left Me Just When I Needed You Most. It was huge. I mean, he, he recorded that and wrote it. I think I've since heard it was about his car. He I thought he told me one time it was about his dad, but it was a worldwide hit. But anyhow, Randy ended up moving to Nashville, and we wrote a lot together. And he called me about this idea he had. I said, what What kind of idea is it? He said, it's called I'm in a hurry to get things done or something. And uh, and we, we just sat down and wrote it fairly quickly. You wrote it in a hurry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And we did know why. Because <laughs> the song says, I'm in a hurry and don't know why. But I mean, everybody felt like it was their song. I mean, because we're all in a hurry, you know. So you took it to Randy Owen? Yes, I took. They were recording down the street, and I took it down and basically left it. I didn't stay for them to play anything, and they called me later and told me they'd that same day. Yeah, and said, "Don't take it anywhere else." Oh yeah, we're this is yeah we're going to do this song. Yeah, and that went to number one. Oh yeah, that was a very stout hit. Probably your biggest song isn't really a country song. We're in this love together. 
Yeah. By Al that's Jarreau. Right. That's right. It was a worldwide hit by Al. And Keith Stegall and I wrote that. Keith came in one day when I was uh, I was at the office already. So he walked in and I said, hey, Keith, come here a minute. He came over and I said, what do you think about this title? We're in this love together. He said, I like it, but it doesn't sound country to me. He sat down and started writing the riff that ended up in the record. He started writing a guitar kind of a riff, and we started writing that song. And if I'm not mistaken, we wrote everything about the song but the line, berries on the vine that gets sweeter all the time. I actually wrote that line driving home that afternoon when I passed the exit at Brentwood, Brentwood, Tennessee, and I still recall writing that line. You know, when you're when you're driving, it's a good time to write when there's no one else in the car and, and you don't have the radio on. It's just a good time for some reason to think about lines. So so I wrote that last line and we so we were finished with it within a day's setting actually. I like that because it breaks one of the Nashville rules in that it's not an actual rhyme. And it almost takes a jazz singer like Al Jarreau to make it sound like okay. a rhyme. Because time and vine are oh. not a perfect rhyme. Oh, and, yeah, well, and I don't know if you noticed that about that song. So many of the rhymes in it are not perfect rhymes. Romantic and planned it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, together and forever, of course, yeah. are. But um, did you think about that at all? Or, you know, did, that's did you interesting because you can get rejected on a song because it's not in in in. Oh in well, maybe that's changed. actually. I was so particular about rhyming. I'm surprised I let myself by with some of that, but it was close enough. I mean, it, it had to be close enough. It sounds or like I a would rhyme. have not. I would have not gone for it. It's interesting that you mentioned it, though, because some of it, they are kind of false rhymes a bit. Yeah, false rhymes, I yeah. guess, is what and, I'm uh, for. But yeah, yeah, I guess uh, the public let us buy with it. <laughs> but there are false rhymes that absolutely... So this comes out in 1981. How does this get to Al Jarreau on the Breaking Away album? I mean, how did, this is yeah. a very well, different song from the rest of the yeah. songs you've written. And, and, well, there was a guy pitching songs for April Blackwood at that time. Now, April Blackwood was the company that co-published the company I worked for. And uh, it, it later on became uh, CBS Songs, which later, later on became uh, bought up. But anyhow, Ed Thomas was pitching songs, and he shot that song out there in, basically in the dark, just sent it out there. I don't even know that he sent it to Al Jarreau. I think he may have sent it to an A&R department for Warner Brothers at the time. But somehow someone took it over to Al, and I hope I'm not uh, mistaken on this. Ed could have actually sent it for Al to hear. You know, weeks go by, and we get a phone call, and they said Al was listening to cassettes last night. And he found this song, We're in This Love Together, and he loved it. He just absolutely loved it. And he said he was going to record it. So I didn't know who Al Jarreau was. I don't guess any of us did, really, because he was pretty much jazz. And we weren't following jazz as closely as... So anyhow, I went downtown and bought an album by him called This Time. And I played that album, and I came back the next day and told people around the office, I said, I don't know what he's going to do to our song, but it's going to be great. This guy is amazing. And sure enough, it was a, it really was a match made in heaven. I mean, I don't know who else could have ever done it like he did it. And he was always so grateful to us for that song as we were to him because, uh, you know, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. But, uh, I went to do an interview up in Buffalo, New York, that they were doing a documentary on Al's life and met his oldest sister. 
and she was so nice. She came over. She lived in Canada. She came over and spoke to me, and she said, I want to thank y'all for taking my brother to AM radio. And what basically what she was talking about, to pop radio, because his background was pretty much jazz. He was a purist for good reason, you know. That song fit him so well, and it crossed the genres from jazz to pop. Her whole family was so grateful that we helped him go pop. <laughs> yeah, and for you and Keith, it crossed oh. from country to pop. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know, it, was, yeah. it went to number 15 yeah. on the pop charts. It still gets airplay all the time. And it's uh, standard at weddings. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been at a wedding where they've played it? I haven't. You I'd, love, I'd love for that to happen. That's but, not happened. Have you been in a karaoke bar where someone was singing it? No, but I've heard about it a lot. I've heard about people doing it. But I'll tell you a funny story that happened to me when we were in this love together. I was I was in Paris, of all places for me, going up the Eiffel Tower. And at that time, they, they had a thing called Muzak. Remember Muzak? Sure. So there I was going up the Eiffel Tower, and I said, and my song came on. We we're in this love together. And I said, oh, man, my song is playing in Paris at the Eiffel Tower, and I have no one to tell. <laughs> I was by myself at the time. And it was such a great feeling. It's like all the way from Alabama to the top of Eiffel Tower, hearing my song, it was just, it was just a tremendous feeling. I imagine... Getting your first royalty check might have been meaningful. Yeah. Do you remember that? i tell you, the one I recall, the, I do recall my first BMI, and it was very, very low. But when I was building my first house, I was short on money, and uh, my brother was there helping. And I got a check in the mail. I think it may have been $40,000 or something, man. And it was just... Wow, it just thrilled me to death. And my brother thought every check I got was like that, but <laughs> not so much. But the timing on it was just right to help me finish the house. So, uh, but uh, there was something I was about to say. I can't remember what it was. The royalty check, your first royalty. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I wanted to tell you about I sang tenor with Bobby Bear at the Grand Ole Opry on the last Friday night at the Ryman. Now, the very last one at the Ryman was Saturday night, but I sang harmony on Friday night. I ended up getting a check, and I think it was about $15 or something like that. And uh, I told somebody, I said, I should frame this. If I didn't need the money, I would. <laughs> but I needed the money, I'm sure, to buy groceries. So, You remember the song you sang there? Yeah, it was uh, a song called Marie Laveau. Who, uh, Shel Silverstein wrote that. And I sang on the record. I sang the tenor on the record. And so Bobby asked me to go out to the Opry, and that was a big big thrill for me. You didn't write anything with Shell, right? No, I didn't. Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. But he came to see me one time as a publisher. I was in publishing at the time. And he was came to talk to me about possibly representing his catalog, which would just been unbelievable to have done, but it that didn't work out. But while he was there, of course, as you know, he was a cartoonist for Playboy magazine. And I asked him one time if he ever gave his sketches to anybody and don't know that he ever answered me, really. But as he sat there, I had a book of his called The Giving Tree, which he also wrote children's books as well. When our visit was over, he had drawn my name carved in a tree and everything in this book. It was the most amazing thing. I still have it. It's unbelievable. A, a drawing by Shel Silverstein. So 1986 was a very good year for you. You had two number ones. Hearts Aren't Made to Break, They're Made to Love by Lee Greenwood mm -hmm. on the Streamline album. And Life's Highway by Steve Warner mm -hmm. on Life's Highway. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about these songs? Heart, hearts uh, Aren't Made to Break? Hearts Aren't Made to Break, They're Made to Love. Uh, I remember us taking that to Jerry Crutchfield, who was, he was producing Lee at the time. And uh, I just remember being thrilled that he liked it 
and Lee ended up liking it. And they recorded it. And I remember the first time I heard it, it sounded like it was slow. But after time went on, I realized the the rhythm of it was just perfect for the song. What I remember the most is the gratitude I've felt through the years for all these things that have happened like that. I just loved having a Jerry Crutchfield production. I loved having a Lee Greenwood song, song and and us getting that song recorded by them. Life's Highway was the first and only song I believe I ever wrote. No, it was one of two songs I wrote with Richard Lee. Richard actually wrote my favorite line in that song, and that is, here's hoping you never stray on Life's Highway, I believe it was something like that. But it's something close to that. (laughs) I love that sentiment. Richard actually wrote that. And Richard was one of the best melody people ever. And I think we we really collaborated a lot on that song, melodically and lyrically. You wrote a lot of songs about breaking up. Yeah. Well, you know, it's the angst in the song that really pulls that emotion. I've been told through the years that people could tell my songs by the sadness in them. A lot of them do have a sad streak in them, and I think it's because of uh, some things I went through as a young person. So I kind of wrote that out in my songs. But, you know, songwriting is cathartic, you know, very much so. And I never, until recently, have I realized the help songs and music have been to people around the world. We had a song that I published called "Moving." I'm Moving On, but that Philip White co-wrote. He, he actually spoke to us yeah. about that song. Yeah. It's on the podcast. We actually got mail on that, and I'm sure he may have told you about it. He got one letter for sure that the person said they were close to, to committing suicide and heard that song, and it saved their life, really. Did he tell you about getting stabbed with the award on a song? No, he didn't. He, okay, he got an Academy of Country Music Award on, uh, it may have been I'm Moving On, I can't remember. But he said he said he worked all of his career, and all of a sudden he's on television and receives this Academy of Country Music Award, and the, it has a hat on the award with real pointed sides, and he ended up stabbing his hand with, he said he was bleeding in that from that uh, award, but Philip was a special writer. He, I enjoyed working with him. So perhaps my favorite song is Don't Rock the Jukebox. Really? Just I didn't know so, you were a country fan. It's so danceable, yeah. and I'm an Alan Jackson fan. And Alan's talked a lot about that song, yeah. um, where that came from. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you co-wrote it with yeah. him and Keith, and you were one, of, I think, Alan's go-to guys. Well, um, at that time, yeah. Uh, you know, at that time. <laughs> Me yeah. and Jim McBride. Yeah. Jim and he wrote a lot of stuff together. Great stuff. But I'll tell you about somebody I've been asked before a few times, actually, that did we feel like we had something when we wrote that song? And, you know, experienced writers do have a better inkling of that possibility than average Joe, I guess. But I said, when we got Rolling Stone and George Jones rhyming, I said, I knew we had something special. But you know what? I always kind of basically gave it credit for being a ditty. I I felt like it was kind of a ditty, okay? But then I got to hearing how many young people it brought into the fold of country music. I mean, they were coming in by the droves because of Don't Rock a Jukebox. But one of the smartest things I've seen an artist do was on, when we were writing that song, Alan, as I've mentioned before, he was singing demos. That's, that's what he was doing to make a living. And he hadn't, hadn't made it yet. And, of course, hadn't even gotten a record deal. He'd gotten turned down by just about everybody in town. But he had the sensibility as a singer that he didn't want to turn anybody off with that song. So it was his idea for us to go, I ain't got nothing against rock and roll. 
But when your heart's been broken, you need a song that's slow. That was Alan's idea. He wanted to he wanted to keep the rock people in. He wanted to pull a crossover yeah, yeah, audience, exactly. which he did. He exactly. was successful in doing. Exactly. And he, he just wanted to be sure everybody was taken care of. And I thought that was ingenious for him at that point in his career. He didn't really have a career, actually, for him to know that. But he knew he was going to be singing it. You know, if it's a hit, he's going to sing it forever. So I just thought that was ingenious, really. This notion of country versus rock, which to me it feels like it's a little more created by the country crowd than the rock crowd, but I could be wrong on that, you know, because you had Bob Dylan come to Nashville in the mid-70s, and the reason he did was because the musicians, the session musicians, he liked better than the guys he was Mm -hmm. playing with in Greenwich Mm -hmm. Village. Yeah. And so he said, let's go to Nashville and you know, where the guys know how to play session music, <laughs> I guess. I'm not to yeah. offend the yeah. other guys. Yeah. That album was Skyline. National it? Skyline. Nash- well, that was subsequent to actually him oh, okay. recording with session musicians here. Oh, That's when okay. he fell in love with Nash. Oh, okay. Okay. And Well, you know what? You make a very uh, legitimate point. Country music, it was carved out of a very difficult, painful, poor people past, okay? They were very proud of that. They were very proud of that. With all due respect to everybody, I mean, sometimes the uh, when there's a lack of education, there's a lack of, uh, what do you call it, sharing of things. It's like, I don't know, this is my baby, don't mess with it. You know, and so it comes from a traditional music, and they were very protective of it. They didn't want anybody damaging it with uh, harsh guitar sounds and things like that, you know. That's why the opera was so slow to add drums and to add other instruments. But it just comes from a hardcore background. It's what it is. But... As musicians came together, we had to learn how to share these things that we all love so much. And the fusion of it all is where it's at, really. It really is where it's at. Nobody loves traditional country music more than me. But I I also realized that music evolves. It evolves. It's always changing. Whether we like it or not, it's always changing. You can be hardcore and stuck in the tradition, or you can grow with it. It's up to you, you know? So um, I'm not one of those old-timers that uh, put down what's going on with the young people. I think they're doing their best with it, and some of them are making some amazing uh, music. Some of them aren't. But that was true of traditional people as well. Some people made great music. Some people didn't make so great music. But I think it would be the countryside of things that was protecting their uh, their George Joneses of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were <laughs> very treasures. proud of that. Exactly, exactly. They don't mess with our treasure, you know. And he was a character and a half, to yeah, say the least. He was, and and someone I never did get a recording by him. <laughs> to try. But, uh, we've yeah, we've pitched him some things, but he didn't, it, buy it. It didn't work. I, th- I believe it was your last number one in 1985 was by Clay Walker, If I Could Make a Living. Mm-hmm. And you wrote that with Keith Stiegel and Alan Jackson. Exactly. And I was wondering, like, why did Alan pass on that and, well, and give you know it to what? Clay? <laughs> you know what? I don't, I don't even know if Alan remembered the song. <laughs> Because it was the most perfect Alan Jackson song there ever was. And for some reason, he just never did get around to recording it. But luckily, we were very fortunate in that Keith Stigall was producing Clay Walker. And so he cut it on Clay, and Clay went to number one with it. But uh, I always wondered why in the world did Alan not cut that song? 
I bet he wish he had after Clay took it to number one. So I don't know. But it worked out okay. <laughs> so this is one of your love songs. I really love your love songs, if I may say so. What do you look for when you're trying to write a love song like this? And it's a beautiful love song. If I could make a living out of loving you. Yeah. Those lines, they just fell pretty quickly, pretty easily. And we were just having fun with it. And it was very positive toward the woman, which it must be. It has to be in songwriting. But, you know, it's it's bouncy, it's fun, and it's very positive toward her. And I don't know what to say, really. Maybe you should ask me about lines rather than the song. I don't know. But. <laughs> I could work all day and feel right at home loving that eight to five. Well, it's like with her, he... He, he could get along well in the world. I was wondering if you draw any personal inspiration from loves when you write these songs, or do you completely separate that part of your life out and you have this whole imaginary place you go to when yeah. you write songs? Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what I borrow from real life are the emotions. And I take them over here in this imaginary world and swap them around, use them different things. But the emotion is real. That's an odd thing, but that's that's the way I work. Because I always because, thought that guys like you would write a song like this and take it home to the girl that they loved yeah, or were yeah, after yeah. and say, what do you think? of I, You inspired me to write this. What do you think? Well, and, and did you ever do that or never did well, that? Well, I would—there uh, are songs that I would take my wife, you know, to, to get her opinion on. But she was quite the critic. And I didn't get away with anything with her, you know, but she was much quicker to criticize than encourage, unfortunately. And so I was very reluctant, just depended. But my my background with love is not really something you would write songs about. Isn't that a interesting? The angst of it all, I was pretty good at that. <laughs> it has to be there. So... Blake Shelton recorded yeah. a top 10 hit for you. My buddy, my buddy. He's He used to hang out at the office and listen to songs. And I didn't know this, but he took a copy of Goodbye Time with him one day. And in Blake's mind, one of these days I'm going to record this. Now, most people would not cover a Conway Twitty cut. It's like most people wouldn't record a... Elvis Presley cut, something Elvis had done. But Blake didn't care. <laughs> That's Blake for you. And so we ended up with two two top five or top ten records on that song because of Blake. But he was just hanging out at the office listening to songs. That's what he was doing. He loved songs. And you co-wrote that with James Dean Hicks. Mm -hmm. um, he said that it was about his brother's divorce. Yeah. That's what he told me that later. <laughs> later. But, but uh, not in the session he didn't tell you that. <laughs> well, yeah, I think he did talk about that. But um, I'm sure James Dean as well has received some of the best compliments about that song because it doesn't have a lot of lyric in it. It's very, very, uh, what you call it, compact lyrically. But the melody is spot on for what it's saying, you know, and... Uh, Conway just loved it. There was a line in there that Conway wanted to change. I said, please, don't don't change it. Usually, kind of went with uh, artists when they wanted to change something. But actually, I, I've only had that happen three times. But uh, <laughs> You remember each one. Yeah, I do. That line was, uh, what's the line in there about me? The first, first verse. It's your life. You say you need a change. Don't all the dreams we've seen come true mean anything? You say it's different now, and you keep staring at the door. How can you walk away? Don't I matter anymore? That's the line. Don't I matter anymore? Conway thought it was too uh, self-serving for the singer, but it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Don't I matter anymore? I mean, that's the that's the most longing sadness, and I'm so glad he didn't change it. Yeah. He, he he was just concerned about it being a little too me-me. But uh, 
He went with me on it. He took my word for it. Kept. He kept it. Yeah. And in the other two cases, did they keep it when you yeah. fought for it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, no. The, okay, <laughs> Alabama. In the course on high cotton, the original line was a little too poetic, and Randy Owen knew his audience so well. The line was too what we call heady, too poetic. That line, leaving home was the hardest thing we ever faced, okay? That originally was, leaving home was the hardest crop we ever raised, talking about the children, you know? And Randy said it, it, it's not easy enough to grasp. So what I learned from that, though, you can change a line, but the song doesn't have to suffer. Because you come up with a line that you feel good about, that they feel good about as well. And that's exactly what we did. That's exactly what we did. And and the song's better because of that. It really is. And it's because of Randy. I think in Goodbye Time, that notion that don't I matter anymore, you hear that a lot from people who go through divorce. You know, I, I felt like I didn't matter anymore. You know, why'd you break up? You know, I, I felt exactly. like I didn't matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. kind of a lonely feeling, to Ex- say the least. Exactly. And that was why it was so important to me that that he keep it. Don't you care about me anymore? What about me, you know? Well, you know, the song that I really love that you wrote for the Oak Ridge Boys in that ilk is the Ozark Mountain Jubilee. Oh, thank you, man. I love oh, that song. Oh, I can't believe we haven't talked about this We song. need to talk about this oh, song. Oh, please, yes. Okay, I, I can remember sitting in our first house, and uh, that song, when I'm forced to pick my favorite, that, that's what I have to pick, because the song has parallel stories going on in it. One is he leaves home to chase his dream like boys do, you know? like girls do as well. And then they circle back and come back home and find out what they're looking for was right there at home, you know? And in this case, he leaves home, goes, and comes back also to die, to be buried. That's going on in that song all along, you know? When we first started writing the song, we got to that Missouri line, we wanted to have it somewhere other than the South. We wanted it to be something different. And so that's why we went to Missouri. We had a geography book sitting on a table, and we just looked up, and we found the San Francisco Silver Dollar Line in this geography book, and come to find out later, it was actually a park train that they called the, the Frisco Silver yeah, Dollar Line. yeah. Was what they converted it to a restaurant or something? It was a diner. I don't know, but it, <laughs> in it, a park train, huh? yeah. it didn't move. But that's where that that's where that name came from. And you know, early on, we Jerry Crutchfield and us tried to get it to Glenn Campbell. For some reason, I thought Glenn would be perfect for it. Well, one reason because he's from the Ozarks. He is from Arkansas, but that didn't work out. But William Lee, of course, sang the sang that, and he sings it in every show now. And William Lee, of course, is from Alabama, like me, and uh, well, he identified with that song somehow. But we, we've had amazing comments from people on that song. It, it's just been a real, real winner for us, and I, I couldn't be more happy with how it all came out. And and when we started writing the song, we didn't know what the title was. So we we get all the way down through the through the course, and that Ozark Mountain Jubilee was the phrasing that needed to fit that line. Jubilee actually comes from the Bible, from the early uh, the Jubilee they talk about is one of the uh, uh, feast days, and just that sound of a Jubilee, and then hearing that through the years through hymns and things like that, that's where uh, that came from. The line in there that grabs my attention, if I can't be a favorite son, I'll be the prodigal one. What does that mean? Of course, the prodigal son is a story in the Bible. The point we were making was if I can't be 
something special, I'll be the one that's not so special. Okay? If I can't be your favorite son, I'll be your prodigal one. That's talking to the people of his state, the people of his home, the people of his growing up. If I can't be something special to you, let me be the one that's not so special. That's really what that's about. But it's taken right out of the Bible, the idea of it. It echoed for me Creedence Clearwater Revival's music mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. John Fogarty's lyrics there. Yeah, was, yeah. And but, those, but obviously the Bible. Was, and the band, a, too. And the band, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Having a song that anywhere close to either one of those just means the world to me. But that's that's the origin of it. I love this song. I think it's a, just thank you, you know, thank you very much. Beautiful. The only dream music related that I have had that hasn't come true is I want to do a songwriter album. I'm still hoping to do that, and Ozark Mountain Jubilee will certainly be one of the songs. What does a songwriter album mean? Well, it, it just means a songwriter singing his own songs. Okay, as opposed to pitching them. For someone else. Yeah, yeah. I actually got in this business to sing. You did. You wanted yeah. to be a I wanted a front to be a person. singer, yeah. But the writing took off. I didn't have the time to devote to being an artist that you have to have. It worked out for the best. I wouldn't want to go on the road. You know, I wouldn't want to do what they had to do, but I've always sung my own demos and things like that. You know, I, I obviously interview a lot of songwriters, and, and many of them start thinking that they'll sure be the performer. And exactly. I think the vast majority realize the road is is a rougher place than you think. There's exactly. A, it's a, tough, boy. It's a tough. lot of hours on a bus or in a car as opposed to performing. Yeah. You know, you have days where you got to put the smiley face on and get out there and... Exactly. <laughs> put the show on when you're not show maybe in the on. best mood. <laughs> Show must go on. Or feeling 100%. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable what artists give up. It costs them a lot, man. It costs them a lot. In so many respects, being the writer who gets to stay home while they sell your songs is yeah. not, the, not the worst thing. No, it's, it's actually the best job in town. Well, I hope we can get one of your other songs recorded by someone contemporary as part of this. I, that would really <laughs> thrill me if you 